0: and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice.
1: And I'm Brian, and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor, who's definitely not your average guest, to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness.
0: We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity, learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Brian, did you know that the average person checks their phone 47 times a day?
1: I would love to say I was horrified by that number, but I feel that's about right, especially as most of us are now working from home.
0: On our podcast this week, we have a very special guest to help us understand how we interact with our devices, the internet, and especially how the younger generation Zers have been affected by having access to the online world from early childhood.
1: We do indeed. Robert Wigley backs young entrepreneurs in cutting-edge technology businesses. He chairs UK finance and works closely with some other very interesting sounding organisations in government and finance, using artificial intelligence to improve counter-terrorism and combat economic crimes like fraud. Phew, that's a bit of a mouthful. He's spent a career in finance, rising to be emir chairman of Merrill Lynch and a member of the board of the Bank of England during the 2008 financial crisis. And last, but definitely not least, he's the author of Born Digital, the story of a distracted generation. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be on your podcast. (laughs)
0: Well, your job sounds incredibly fascinating. It looks like you've had an amazing experience and and history within your work. It would be great if we could start from the beginning a little. How would you explain what you do to somebody at a pub or a bar, for example?
2: Almost impossible. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, I try and help youngsters grow businesses. That's really what I try and do. And when I'm not doing that, which is most of the time, I do chair this organisation called UK Finance, which represents the banking industry in the UK.
0: How did you get into that line of work? Would you be able to tell us a little bit about your career up to today?
2: So going back 30, 40 years, I qualified as an accountant. I then went into banking, spent 25 years there, rising in the end to run this huge organisation, uh, Merrill Lynch, in Europe, with 9,000 people in 23 countries, and about a half a trillion dollars of gross assets on the balance sheet, and a lot of stress. And at that time, I was put onto the board of the Bank of England just in advance of the financial crisis, by, by well, invited by the Prime Minister, and help the bank work out what to do about the impending crisis. And then I left banking after the crisis. As I say, for the last 10 years, it's been a big focus on young entrepreneurs. I do a little bit of work for the government. I do some academic work and I do quite a lot of philanthropic work.
0: Wow, that's incredibly impressive. I guess, kind of over that span of your career, what would you maybe say has been your, your proudest moment to date?
2: Oh, uh, that's easy, actually. When I was 16, <laughs> I was managing director of a little business as part of something called Young Enterprise, which is a scheme we do at school where you kind of run a business in your in your spare time. I won the national competition. Two or three years later, I mentored some children from a school in uh, in Kingsham near Bristol, where I was working, and they won the national competition. And the reason this is such a good story is that on the way back from the competition, they said to me, listen, you've had this great experience, we've had this great experience, but there are many schools in the UK that don't have a young enterprise company. How do we make sure there's one in every school? I said, easy, let's write to the prime minister. Well, bear in mind, I was 19 and they were 16. This was kind of maybe a bit precocious. Anyway, I wrote to the prime minister and slightly to my surprise, she replied, this was Mrs. Thatcher to say, come and see me next week. So we did. And we presented the scheme to her and we left that meeting with her wagging her finger and handbag at a bunch of middle-aged men saying, go make sure there's one of these in every school in the UK by the end of next year.
0: Wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. What an achievement.
2: The the end of the story is then in the group of people she'd invited to listen to our presentation was the chairman of a bank. And he said to me, right, you're obviously trouble. You better come and see me in my office. So I went to see (laughs) him. And while I was sitting there,
1: I was thinking, chairman of a bank, this is what I'm going to do.
0: Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us.
1: And I think finance, entrepreneurship, banking, that's quite a long way away from a book about the distracted generation. Why did you write the book and and how did the idea for the book come about? So the idea for the book really came from
2: watching my own three adolescent children growing up and noticing how different their use of technology is from my generations. And in particular, my youngest son. So my children of 22, 20 and 16 when I wrote the book. So it was watching them. And then I made a New Year's resolution a couple of years ago to meet a new Generation Z entrepreneur every business day, uh, which I did. And I've now met about 200. And it was those meetings and the conversations that were always the best hour of every day, by the way. But it was those conversations that cemented my view that this generation is so fundamentally different from ours that many people in my generation haven't really joined up the dots. they like, they've spotted bits of it, but they haven't joined it all together. They think, you know, well, they'll grow out of it or it'll go back to how it used to be. No, it's not. It's a, it's a massive change and it's not going to go back. And people need to understand it because if you run a business, And you don't understand how how Generation Z's digital wallet is going to drive your revenues in the future. You don't have a business.
1: And I think that's interesting because you and I are roughly the same age. I would like to say we have the same hairstyle, but unfortunately, you seem to have kept yours. We both have children. And I think people my age at least sort of gloss over the differences between Gen Y and Millennials. We sort of lump them all into the same category. And I think a lot of people would actually like to know what the difference is between Gen Y and Millennials and Gen Z. Could you maybe just help explain the difference? Well, so the first thing is, you know, who is Gen Z? Well, it's
2: basically people today between about 5 and 25. And I would say uh, the key area within that is is the adolescent teens. And this is where we're finding the effects of technology so significant, whether it be when they're chilling and scrolling for three hours on Instagram between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning, or whether it's five hours of gaming a day for the boys. Those are where the interesting things are happening.
1: And something else you describe in your book, is young people's relationship with technology. How does that differ? I mean, I, as a parent, I can certainly, re, you know, some of the things you said in your book definitely resonate with me, but how do, to, for some of our listeners, how would that differ, for example, for older young adults and, and people who are a little bit older than this generation? So two key things. Firstly, when we grew up, there was no technology and then it, then it arrived. So
2: we had part of our life where we lived an offline world and then we started to live a mix of online and offline. And the point about that is that we actually distinguish the two. For many of Generation Z, they've never known a time when Google didn't exist. And indeed, for many of them, they don't even need to type. They simply can talk at a machine and it will tell them the answer or search for information or uh, give them the shopping they need. So one of the big differences is what I call messaging, not talking. You and I would probably prefer to sit opposite each other, look at each other in the eye, have a conversation. Most Generation Z are very happy with messaging. Not so. Indeed, they even refer to messaging as a conversation, whereas you and I would call a conversation a conversation. And why is that so important? Well, it's to do with empathy. If I sit and talk to you and I say something you don't like, or I swear, or I use an appropriate language, you wince. And I immediately pick up that visual clue and I aim off. The problem with texting or messaging is you don't get that feedback. There's also the potential for misunderstanding, which doesn't tend to arrive so much in, in in-person conversation. So that's probably the biggest difference. It's, it's this reliance on texting and messaging, not in-person, face-to-face communication, which gives you an immediate visual clue as to how your message is
1: being received. I think that's really interesting. I'm actually the parent of a child who's on the autism spectrum. He's high-functioning. And it was quite interesting to me because um, my middle son, who's 13 years old, really struggled during the, the pandemic with the lockdown. But my child who's on the spectrum actually didn't really seem to battle. And when we kind of interrogated that a little bit. It was actually to do with the kind of feedback that my more socially adept son was used to getting from that sort of personal interaction with people. And my older son just generally has to kind of manually do that. It's the sort of thing that we all do or- automatically. And I think you're quite right. You get some of those challenges with the different channels because some of them become quite one dimensional, don't they? Things like texting kind of reduces the nuance quite dramatically.
2: Dramatically. And and there is a the opportunity for escalation of conflict in texting and messaging, which doesn't tend to exist in a face-to-face conversation. But you, you often find, you know, the, the kids will fall out with each other very quickly in a texting conversation because someone's misunderstood, then they get angry. If you get angry face-to-face, it's not very comfortable, actually. And the person on the other side looks kind of upset, and then you stop. In texting, there is no feedback. So it just kind of quickly escalates uh, into what we call... Uh, escalation, online escalation of conflict.
1: I think the problem is uh, the only thing you have at your disposal is capital letters and they're not really that effective. Something else you you get into quite a bit in the book is the concept of internet addiction. And you kind of explain that as being that the digital world for some people is superior to the one that they inhabit offline. Does that actually mean that's, that the people of this generation are becoming detached from the real world as as a consequence? Let's take a couple of examples. And I don't mean to single out any particular company, but let's just take
2: Instagram, for example, right? Kids have a slight tendency to compare their average or worse self with everyone else's best self anyway, right? That's before you, you get to a platform like Instagram, where it seems everyone looks beautiful, has white teeth, has the biggest abs, runs more miles than you, has the best family, goes on the best holidays, has the biggest boat. You spend your, your time comparing what seems to you like a rather kind of inadequate life mm-hmm. with this perfect existence, which it seems everyone else is living. And can you then wonder that we have a problem with adolescent self-esteem? Of course not. I mean, it's built into the, the way these platforms work. The second, I think, area, which is like is more nascent, but is quite interesting and worrying, is the whole sort of VR and AR area. So you go into the virtual world, which is designed to be kind of exciting and dramatic and perfect. Um, and actually, there are sort of particular variations of that. Let's take porn, for example. You you could have in the VR world, porn with someone you like the look of, and you can superimpose their face onto a, onto a film, making that experience perfect for you. You can decide exactly what you want, when you want, okay? Okay. That doesn't happen in the offline world. So so you're making the online world perfect for you. Why on earth would you
1: bother with the real world? And I think that's what I really enjoyed about your book was you didn't put yourself out there as a sort of paragon of parenting virtue of any kind. You mentioned that your own son's gaming behavior, for example, increased during lockdown. Did you find that there was an effect on their behavior?
2: Yeah, so I think we all had to recalibrate the sort of central tension of most families, which is arguing with our kids about how much time they spend on screens, right? And we had to say, OK, well, look, you know, you can't go and see your friends. So, OK, it's OK that you spend a bit longer than normal, you know, messaging and gaming. And in my younger son's case, that was, it was gaming. And he was doing it quite a lot. But his argument was, look, this is the way I meet my friends. I can't go and see them physically. So I'm, I'm going to meet them online. What's the problem? And fair enough. Now, the truth of the matter is that a lot of gaming in a day does leave yeah, you know, the statistics just show does leave kids more aggressive. They basically been battling or fighting for hours, so when they come off, there's no surprise that that behaviour continues. It does make them more aggressive uh, and less empathetic. So yes, I definitely noticed a difference. He he wouldn't agree with me, uh, but you know that's fine. That, that's good parental sort of uh, tension.
0: And with this generation being more online and interacting virtually more and more than previous generations, for example, do you think crime will potentially change and become more and more virtual going forward?
2: Well, it already is, Alice. So I think that roughly 88% of fraud now starts with an online event. So it's either something on a social media platform or something on an e-commerce platform. I'm afraid the cyber criminals have worked out that there's much less risk to committing a crime online than there is to breaking in through your window. It's just much easier and the the risk of being caught is much lower. So it already has, unquestionably, changed the way um, cyber criminals operate.
0: And linked to that as well, you cite in your book that there's a study from Kaspersky on the dangers of gaming to children from cyberbullying to planting malware, for example. What do you think can be done about that? And maybe what advice would you give to parents that you think they need to know?
2: So, in fairness to the gaming companies, quite a lot of them, and particularly the better games, have a lot of software that can help parents control that situation. So, you know, the biggest Xbox, for example, um, which is one of the, you know, one of the biggest platforms, they have a very good parental control suite, which starts with a weekly report, which tells you exactly when your child logged on and off and how long they spent online. It could then tell you whether they were uh, conversing with people in the game that were not in their phone contact book, right? So in other words, if they were strangers, it can obviously monitor loot box activity, it can monitor the degree of violence in games that they're playing. So but of course, most parents either don't know that exists or don't use it. And of course, some kids are quite good at getting around it. So I think it's it's probably about educating ourselves about what's out there to, to help us. And then just actually engaging in conversation with, the, with our kids in a less confrontational way about what they're doing. So one of my favorite bits of software, and I declare an interest because I'm involved with a company that produced it, is called Own It. It sits on your keyboard if you're a child. And if you're about to send an abusive message or we spend a message with bad language in it or or a body image, it doesn't stop you, but it makes you pause. And it just says, before you send that picture to your boyfriend, bear in mind, he might become your ex-boyfriend. And then maybe you're not going to be so keen for him to have that picture or... Before you call him a XYZ, you know, do you really want that in black and white that he may then use that against you at some future point? So it doesn't stop you, it empowers the child to make their own decision, but it educates them as to why there's a risk. And that is one of my favorite pieces of software.
1: I think that's what I really enjoyed about the book is there's always a balance. It's quite easy just to kind of demonize the entire you know online world and say, we should all get off. And that's not really practical, but there are aspects of the online world, which are really, really problematic. You talk about the rise in aggression. One of our previous guests on the podcast, Jeff White, suggests that gaming was how most hackers got their start. Now they first used their computing skills to hack the games that they were playing. And then you also mentioned a study in your book that found that gamers, particularly the young ones aged between 10 and 15, who played quite extensively, tended to feel less empathy towards others. Yeah. So there are many, many studies on gaming. And I, and I have to tell you, interestingly, it
2: is one where the children's protection charities are they're not as against gaming as I would have expected as a parent, if I'm briefly honest. Um, you know, they do say that uh, as as indeed the the trade body that represents the gaming industry claims, there are some benefits to um Certain amount of time on gaming in terms of increasing certain types of skills. Okay, my concern is not the average user spending you know a couple of hours a day gaming, I think it's people who spend four or five hours a day and probably spend it potentially spend it on, on the most aggressive games. That's where I think the danger lies. And only yesterday in the Sunday Times, there was a big article about the way. Cyber criminals are recruiting youngsters through games, through befriending them in games to commit crimes like operating mule accounts and like tech scams. Big article about that yesterday in the Sunday Times, making that precise point. So we know the cyber criminals know that
1: they can get at kids through games and they do. Absolutely. And I think as parents, we're, we're sort of discovering these things along with our children to some extent. Most people don't understand cryptocurrency, for example. It's a very small. You know, as, as ubiquitous as they seem to be, they certainly something which is not universally understood. But all of us have been forced to get into all of these sorts of things, become more familiar with them because of the pandemic and the lockdown. You wrote the book during the pandemic last year. Is that correct? And what was that experience like? Yeah, exactly.
2: Like? Yeah, so I started writing it in March in the first lockdown, and I had to sort of come back to it in November, December to say. What about lockdown has changed my views here? So we, when it, it was that point about it enabling connectedness of a sort, even if it wasn't, you know, the kind of connectedness that I'd like to see. So yeah, definitely, definitely slightly recalibrated my view. But I think we're rapidly going back to quotes, you know, near a normal. And so we will get back to all these areas where I think in unintentionally technology attacks the places where empathy can be developed whether it's face-to-face conversation, whether it's conversation at work, whether it's communal mealtimes, which, by the way, are also massively on the decline because youngsters prefer food on the go, grab-and-go options, uh, or very light food service kind of restaurants. Um, So the traditional places where you and I developed empathy as we were growing up uh, don't happen so much because technology interrupts that natural flow of conversation.
0: And I think, Bob, there you make a very interesting point around, you know, we're hopefully now making that move back towards normality or our new normality. And we're now looking into, okay, what does that workplace look like? Are we going to have the nine to five Mm -hmm. like we did previously? Is there going to be more flexible working? How do you think kind of moving back into that normality, the Generation Z, fit into that space? I know within your book, you mentioned about the, you know, the digital workplace, if I can call it that. And I've always been a person to think about, you know, it's not necessarily B2B or B2C, but P2P, people to people. How do you think Generation Z will will fare in that new space?
2: I think it plays to what they look for, which is, in a word, flexibility. So just as they don't see a boundary between the on and offline world, I don't think they'll see a boundary between being at work and not at work. In other words, they will expect to work when they're not in the office, and they will expect to have some time not working when they are in the office. You know, it isn't about the physical boundary of walking into an office for this generation, which is why I call them fidgetal, meaning a combination of physical and digital. Um, they will expect, you know, remote working options and technology to facilitate it. They will expect flexi time. They will expect non-standard holiday arrangements. So this is they want to be flexible in the way they approach work. This new uh, em- employment situation, employers will have to adapt
1: to that. Uh, Otherwise, they're not going to attract the youngest and the best talent. In the book, you talk about companies fighting a battle royal for our attention, especially when they market to the younger generations. Uh, Are companies then part of the problem as well, or certain companies in any event, in, in just constantly distracting the younger generation and indeed everybody? Yeah, so Battle Royale,
2: which of course is, you know, I'm using that term from the gaming industry, uh, out of place, as it were. Yes, I mean, look, the whole basis of social media platforms business is to attract your attention and retain it for as long as possible, because they're selling your eyeballs uh, and the attention behind it to their advertisers. So as one commentator put it, if you have on one side of the screen, one partly formed adolescent brain, and on the other side of the screen, you have 100 of the world's best neuroscientists, Designing the platform to be addictive, it's hardly a fair fight, is it? And who do you think is going to win? So, yes, you know, the platforms are built to be addictive to encourage compulsive use. And, you know, in some cases, they're very successful.
0: And in terms of um kind of the research that you did for for your book and on speaking with, you know, the Generation Z cohort that you've been speaking to on a regular basis. Would you say that the things that you've learned, the things that you've seen, the things that you've gathered from the people that you've spoken to has changed maybe the way you and your family live, parent or work, for example?
2: So I yeah, I'd taken myself off Facebook altogether, not that I was a big user to start with, but I'd taken myself off. I so probably the biggest thing for me is actually just putting my phone physically distant from me when I don't want to be interrupted. The fact of the matter is if it's sitting next to you on the desk when you're working, and I found this when I was writing the book, it just interrupts you the whole time. It distracts you every other second. So at mealtimes, uh, and my wife is probably chuckling as she hears this because she'll be thinking I'm being, I'm being hypocritical, but family mealtimes, I try and either leave the phone in the other room or I put it behind me on a chair where I can't see it. And I turn off all the notifications. There's no buzzing, beeping, or ringing. And guess what? You'll find you'll go for 45 minutes to now without picking up your phone. If it's sitting on the table you just can't help yourself. It's it's designed to be addictive. So why would you? So, yeah, I, I have definitely changed my behavior. As I said, that I can hear the family all laughing from a distance saying dad's just as bad as he ever was.
0: You mentioned earlier on in the podcast that you meet many young entrepreneurs um, on a very regular basis. And what has been your impression of them? What has maybe impressed you the most about your, your meetings with them?
2: So as I said earlier, I think we're leaving them a, a pretty miserable uh, hand of cards in terms of the sort of setup that they're going to have to deal with. And I think they are nevertheless incredibly positive and incredibly purposeful about how they're going to lead their lives. So they want to solve society's problems. They think the capitalist model is broken. They expect companies to help solve societal problems, not just have a purpose, which is making money for shareholders. So what gives me excitement about the future is I think Generation Z is really going to deliver on solving some of these societal problems that we've created and left them. And I'm very excited about that. So the book is actually, please don't get the idea that this is like some bunch of old farts complaining about the new generation. It's not like it used to be and you know, it's not as good as it used to be. It's not that at all. I'm trying to explain to people my age how different Generation Z is, but then the conclusions are very positive about the effect they're going to have on society and the planet.
1: And I think I very much got that message from your book, Um, initially, I actually found it quite, quite heavy going in the sense that as a parent, you sort of start to see all the things that you could be doing and potentially should be doing. And I certainly would describe myself and and my wife's parenting style when it comes to digital parenting as, as, as well above average, but after you're reading your book wholly inadequate, what is the main message that you would want readers of the book to take away?
2: So there's one I think for parents is is involve yourself in your children's online life. So when we when we chat to our kids and I, you know I'm, as i said I'm no parent and a virtue on this one. You say what have you been doing today and they'll say oh well you know I met John and we played tennis or I went down to the park and you know um, Fred and I played football whatever. What we don't tend to say is yeah sure okay that that's great but between 11 p.m and 2 a.m when you were on Snapchat for 3 hours as a matter of interest who were you talking to and what kind of things were going on right? And maybe it feels like prying, um, but we have to do it because that is where our kids are are leading their lives, the bulk of their lives, actually, spend more time online than they do either being educated and sleeping. And we don't involve ourselves in their online life to the degree we should. And they won't see it as prying. I mean, they might do, but it's all about how you ask the question. I think you can have a conversation about the
1: online life in a much deeper way than we do at the moment. And I think maybe to sort of just double click on that a bit, how did your sons, what did they think of of you writing the book? And and have they actually given you any sort of feedback on on things that might have changed?
2: So to begin with, I think they thought it was a bit weird, I'm brutally honest. But then as I gave them chapters to read, and uh, one of them read the whole book, one of them read some of it, and one of them hardly read it at all. Yeah, they came back with, well, Dad, you haven't got that quite right. Actually, it works like this. Or, you know, do you realize Snapchat does this? So actually, it was brilliantly helpful in terms of making sure that it was accurate. And of course, the 200 people that I interviewed, I would say 30 of them read the whole book. And what you'll see in the book is many of the quotes were quotes they gave me after they'd read the book, where they said, yeah, yup, that exact thing happened to me. I fell out on my girlfriend because of this. This is how it worked. So I try and litter the book with as many practical examples from the generation itself. So it's the story is told in their language, not me as a you know as a 59, 60-year-old trying to be down with the kids and pretend that I understand what's going on. It's It's through their language.
0: And I can definitely empathise with that, you know, even say, for example, the age difference at 19 years between myself and my youngest niece, she's um, 10 and even just in her world, you know, the information that she has access to and the technologies that she has access to. And I'll, you know, even ask her like, Oh, what does that word mean? Or, you know, Oh, what's the the latest word for this? And she'll give me all of the updates. So it's, it's crazy to see even a disparity of kind of 19 years that there's so much change and trying to keep up with that. What has been maybe the most thought provoking or, or kind of incredible fact that you've come across in your research that has maybe surprised you?
2: So one of the things that that worries me a bit is the whole issue of sort of multitasking. So cause we have so many platforms running at once, you know, different social media plat- platforms, WhatsApp, plus email, plus the telephone itself, right? What generation Z does is multitask by nature. That, that that is their actually their survival mode is is to dart between these different uh I call them digital bees. They're like like sort of bees dropping in on little information honeypots, and then moving on to the next one, but not staying anywhere very long. Now, in the world of AI, where the robots are going to take over the basic work in society, leaving only the most complex work for human beings, are we at the very moment when we need our children to be able to focus, concentrate, and do complex things, which means attending, deep, deep listening, deep watching, right? Deep attending, Are we, at the very moment, they need to learn those skills, actually teaching them to multitask so that they can't do that? That, I think, is the conundrum that most concerns me.
1: And then I think, Bob, really, just a final point from me on on the book. It, It struck me that what's lacking is not really a set of rules. I think most of these rules are kind of self-evident if you look at them quite carefully. It's a lack of role models. And unfortunately for you, I think you've put yourself out there as a potential role model for the rest of us. So we're going to keep an eye on you. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, We always like to end our episodes by asking our guests three simple questions.
0: So looking back over your career, what's maybe one insight that you wish you'd learned sooner or maybe that you could go back and tell your younger self?
2: Uh, Focus. So if you want to succeed, and actually it's highly relevant to the conversation we were just having, don't do, don't try and do five things well at once, try and do one thing superbly well. And I can't remember who, was it was it that amazing American swimmer who said, you know, it's amazing when you practice something for seven hours a day,
1: how quickly you get better at it. So I think focus is the one thing I would really hone in on.
0: Fantastic. Thank you.
1: And then as much as you can learn a huge amount from someone from a video, we found you can actually learn a huge amount by asking someone what they're reading or listening to at the moment. So apart from your book, is there anything that you'd recommend for our listeners? Well, there's a brand new book out
2: yesterday, funny enough, by a bunch of anthropologists about uh, what's called the death of proximity, which is literally to my point in my book about how you can be sitting next to someone, but in fact, distant from them because you're engaged with your technology, not engaged with the human being you're sitting next to. So I'm reading that at the moment, I not the name of the book, but it's it's a very interesting study by I think fourteen different anthropologists around the world about the effects of technology on our communication.
0: Oh wow, fantastic! I'll definitely be noting that one down. Thank you. And looking more towards the future, this time next year, where do you think we'll be with tech and regulation, and what trends are you spotting?
2: So really good news here. I think uh, the UK government has got the bit between its teeth on trying to rein in some of the worst offenders. So they are bringing in this year the Online Harms Bill. Think of this as health and safety legislation for the digital world. So we had the Industrial Revolution. We had lots of dangerous machinery, people working in factories. It took a long time for there to be legislation to force employers to protect their employees against the machinery and accidents in the workplace. Well, we've had a very rapid rise of technology, and we have no regulation to make the big techs responsible for any harms they cause. It's coming. It's called the Online Harms Bill. And the idea will be that companies will have a statutory duty of care. To look at what harms their products might cause, particularly to kids and the vulnerable, and then to take actions to mitigate their harms, mitigate those harms. And if they don't take sufficient action, Ofcom, the regulator, will have the ability to find the big tech. So that's a really interesting development. It's actually groundbreaking. And there's nothing like it elsewhere in the world. So I think there are good developments on the horizon.
0: Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. And no, I definitely will be looking forward to hearing more about that. So we'll definitely keep our eyes peeled to, to see further information. And thank you so much, Bob, for talking with us today. I know Brian and I have definitely learned a lot and I can imagine so for our listeners as well. Do you have any final recommendations that we maybe haven't covered?
2: if you if you're interested in the book it's it's www.robertwiggly.uk
0: oh thank you so much for your time today and definitely thank you as well to all of our listeners for joining us on this week's fishy business it's really been a pleasure to have you with us if you have enjoyed our podcast please do leave us a review on spotify itunes or wherever you're hearing this and feel free to follow us on twitter at mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today thanks everyone until next time